and welcome back to another episode of In the Shed on Code with Kingy where this time around I am joined by former Hurricane James Marshall to discuss his career as well as some of the stuff he is doing around the game off the field which includes being a fellow podcaster. Now for those of you that aren't familiar with Jimmy Marr he is the host of the Wad Lab podcast which similar to me is about getting boys on and giving you guys a look into what it's really like being a rugby player and what some of these guys are like off the field and I guess the beauty with someone like Jimmy Marr in comparison to someone like me is that he's actually a professional that's gone and walked the talk and he's just got an even greater rapport with a lot of the players and the network that he has so I really do encourage you guys to go and check out his podcast I was an idiot during our interview and the fact that I didn't help him plug it or didn't allow for him to plug it so I'm doing it now the Water Lab podcast go check it out well go check it out after you're done listening to me and his yarn which we will roll into right now enjoy Okay. Yeah, so uh, thank you very much, James, for accepting my invitation onto Code with Kingy. I was quite taken back when I introduced myself over Instagram, the fact that you actually knew who I was. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm pretty chuffed. And, yeah, if, if people can't really tell through my voice, um, I'm sitting here with a big, big smile on my face. Oh, Kingy, lad, I love your work. I've been a big, big listener of yours. You were actually one of the first podcasts I listened to when I was thinking about, you know, jumping into the podcast thing and, I was seeing what other podcasts were on the market and I saw your one and listened to a few of your episodes and it was all good stuff. I loved that. Appreciate that, man. Appreciate that. But yeah, um, why don't we start right from the get-go, my man? So how did you get into playing footy and where did you grow up? So I grew up in Auckland, started playing footy. My parents took me down to the local um, Auckland ground down there and it was I was five years old. My brother was three and we both just had a wee run around and I actually didn't like it, eh? So I, I moved over to soccer, went to a soccer, enjoyed soccer way more at that age. And then it, the family moved down to Nelson when I was eight years old and started, I wanted to play soccer, but um, all my friends at my new school were playing rugby. So um, I didn't want to play soccer by myself. So I basically just went along to rugby with them and played it ever since, really. Mm, so there was no pressure from your parents, like your old man wasn't a rugby fella? No, I always loved rugby. Like, I always loved watching it. Um, my dad played rugby. Yeah, and I always loved it. So he, he he obviously thought that I would have liked rugby, and I, I actually thought I would have. But when I went down there as a five-year-old, I wasn't wasn't too keen on it. But, yeah, as I got older, the more the more I started to love the game. And, um, yeah, I was never actually that good. Like, throughout all my younger years, I, I was never a very good player but I just loved the game so much and just wanted to keep getting better and yeah keep learning and I just loved watching it so um, I, I felt like I picked up the game from the technical side of things a bit quicker than um, some other guys at my age but physically and stuff I was I was pretty small and weak and skinny and just got battered a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Now you, you go on to play for Nelson College is that correct? Yeah, yeah, went to Nelson College and played the last two years, first 15 there, which was sort of a moment in my career, a little bit earlier than that, where I missed out on the under-16 A team, and that was after I decided that I wanted to be a professional rugby player, and then I just sat down, I was like, man, I, 
if I'm serious about being a professional rugby player, I need to actually start training like I want to be a professional rugby player. So I went hard for two years and I said if I wasn't going to make the first 15, if I hadn't made the first 15 by seventh form, I'd um, I'd give up on my rugby dream. But noticed that the harder I started working, that the more things started to happen. And then I started making the Nelson College first 15 and started making the rep teams and then made the Tasman Academy and just sort of spirals started happening from there. Upward spirals started happening from there. And yeah, and ever been playing ever since, really. So you talk about that you get to that sort of part in your life where, you know, it could go either way depending on how hard you work. Now, your brother also played professional rugby. So did he sort of join in on that or was he probably a bit too young at that time when you really looked to put your head down and, and, and work through stuff? Uh, we we always played together and stuff and we were constantly playing like in the backyard and stuff. But um, when I made that conscious effort to start training like a professional athlete, he was still too young and he, he didn't really do it. But um, after talking to him, he, he obviously watched me do that and he saw um, the growth that I had and how things started to happen for me. And he obviously um, replicated that a couple of years later when he was at the age. And yeah, he, he overtook me pretty quickly. He was, he was a good player. It's a funny one because even I look back now and it, and it covers all sort of spectrums of life in terms of you know, like hard work and, and what you reap from it. So do you think that the the reason why you, I guess, realised so early on in your career or at such a young age that, you know, you needed to really work hard at stuff to get it done was because you weren't as physically developed as some of your peers? Or do you think, is it something that you pulled from your parents or another influential figure in your life? I definitely think that I was just, I just thought about it and thought realistically about what my chances were of becoming a professional rugby player. But like if I wasn't one of the best 26 players in at my school at under 16 level, like realistically, I wasn't never going to be a professional rugby player unless I started to change something. And I realized that and I just thought, let's give it a real good crack. And then, like I said, it was a little bit like, it was quite infectious. Like the more I started training, the harder I worked, the more I sacrificed, um, the more good things started to happen to me. And I sort of caught the bug a little bit and went, like my first couple of years out of school, man, I trained harder than I ever did throughout my whole career I reckon and I've done some pretty hard trainings but I was just like fully committed to committed to this dream and um yeah yeah I managed to get there and I wish I realized that um <laughs> <laughs> at that age man I was I was too busy mucking around with with tv and whatever else was keeping me occupied at that same age so you talk about the you know the, the the couple of years of hard work that you had outside of school so what was the plan when you left Nelson College well, um, even like so, career-wise, did you have like a trade lined up? Did you want to go to uni? No, nah, nothing. I did throw all my eggs into the rugby basket. And um, I I actually went to um, the Polytech in Nelson, went through the academy. I studied um, applied fitness, like sports science sort of thing. Um, it was never really – the plan was that if rugby didn't work out, I'd hopefully start, have studied enough to get – some sort of job in rugby. I knew I wanted to work in rugby some way, um, ideally as a player, but I was going to go down the ladders of, well, if not, then maybe a trainer, if not, you know, like go all the way down to, you know, referee or pool boy or whatever. So um, that the plan was to play rugby, and I, I pretty much committed to that. And after getting picked in the academy, it sort of 
made things a little bit more realistic and the Tasman Mahako had started, which there was a real pathway for me in Nelson um, to be a professional rugby player. And I knew that there's opportunities to travel and stuff and go overseas. So if I didn't ever make it in New Zealand, that was probably going to be my next option was just to travel somewhere else in the world and just play, you know, like there's lots of jobs that have like a rugby, like you can get a rugby gig with a little bit of side work and they look after you and those sort of things. That's, that's the realistic thing that I thought I'd do, make a career out of rugby by just doing those sort of gigs around the world. But yeah, like I said, the more I started training and the more th- good things started happening to me. Mm. So I know now there's the, the Lincoln rugby setup, you know, down in Canterbury, which draws a lot of the big names or a, a, lot, a lot of talent from around the country, particularly in that Nelson or sort of Tasman Canterbury area. So when you left school, I mean, you, you go to the, the, the Tasman Academy or the Marco Academy because you say that was really when it was starting to build up. But was there anything like that? And did you have any pull to, I don't know, maybe go down to Otago at all? Like, was there anything like on like that on offer, you know, for rugby guys like yeah. yourself? No, not really. I was just, um, I was actually just like real keen to get into the Tasman one because, I mean, I wanted to play for Tasman. As soon as it formed, it became like the instant goal for me. And, um, being asked to be in the Tasman Academy, I was all pretty new, so there was no like you weren't really sure how to how things were going to work through the Tasman Academy. But um, being in it, I was loving it, and um, there's some real talented players in there at the time, and um, I was really excited about being involved in that and hope, hoping to progress through to the Tasman thing. Mm-hmm. And so, how long did it take you before you got your debut for the Marco? Um, it was one year, so. I was, the wow. second year out of school first year I did the full year um academy and did, the, did my studies and then um the second year I made made the squad so it all happened pretty quick and um so I was a 19 year old having a run around at the ITM cup level whatever it was at the time and um just loving it eh? who did you make your debut against um that's a good question uh it was Bay of Plenty actually, but I only I only came off the bench for like five or so minutes. That whole first year, I just came off the bench and sort of twenty minutes was the max amount of game time that I'd get. But I remember one game in the preseason where I oh, someone came off early and I was on the bench and I came on before like maybe twenty minutes before half time and it was against Auckland and they had some of their All Blacks playing like Toyava and things like that and I just remember thinking, holy. Um, this is this is a real test for me, and I actually played one of my better games. I remember that, and I just grew so much confidence from that. And I that whole season, I was sort of waiting for an opportunity to start, but I never got it. And I was always just like, I knew it, but I'm so glad because it was such a um, learning process for me, just sitting on the bench watching how it all goes, just picking up lots of little things. And it was the year after where I got my first start, which was which was awesome. Now, what would you say is the biggest difference jumping up to playing professional rugby? Because uh, I mean, like I, I mean, I've made the progression as as a club rugby battler from like your Colts, and then I've been fortunate to play a bit of prem rugby as of late. So, going from the from school then to the academy, and then finally making it to the Marco, like, did you find it was quite a big step up, or did you, like you mentioned, because you were a pretty good thinker around the game, did you find that transition not too difficult? That's a, that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that before, but um, I feel like it was almost easier than I expected. I had such a, um, 
like my vision of the game and stuff was so much like all black the idea of tackling an all black just seemed like an impossible task for me as as a schoolboy. I remember that and um seeing guys like Toyava and stuff on the on the field and the other side, I was like, Man, this is these guys are just gonna steamroll me. I'm still I'm still pretty small and things like that. But then once I made like my first tackle and things like that, I was like, These guys they just go down like normally if you tackle them properly and things like that. It was just more like getting my head around it's not actually as different as in my head I perceived it to be. And um, obviously there's things around the game, which is a lot like the speed of it and having to make decisions and stuff are all a little bit harder. But the initial thing for me was realising that I was up to that level and that was probably the thing that took the longest. Because that, that seems to be the, the sort of twist for a lot of young guys. I know that now a lot is put on these school leavers and especially these kids who have played New Zealand schools and whatnot. And some of them go on to have, you know, pretty good careers. I mean, you look at the likes of Geordie Barrett, who seems to have been around for ages, but he's still only 23. But then you get quite a few kids who are sort of the stars at school, but don't quite make that jump. And so do you think that from what you've seen, probably been around the hurricanes, you know, when you get these kids coming in for the preseason and even with the stuff you're doing at Tasman now is, is a lot of the battle, being a professional rugby player more so in your head than what's out on the field? 100%. And Geordie's a perfect example. That that guy just doesn't fear anything. He's like willing to he's willing to try some of the hardest things in a game and um, if it doesn't come off, his care factor is just so low. Like I just love the way that he can just go out there and play how he wants to, doesn't care about stuffing up or anything like that. He just... He just does what he wants, and you see it at the All Black level and whatever level he's playing at. I mean, it's a real, it's a real skill that he has that he can just play what he thinks and play play how he feels. It's um, compared to other guys, you know, like like myself at that age, where you know you you get a little bit nervous about making mistakes, so that you don't try things, and then um, it's just that it can be quite um, what's the word like encapsulating that you can't can't really play that how you want to play or soon as you start second guessing yourself you miss these opportunities so um mm. it's, a, it's a real thing and you do see it with the young kids coming through it's um it takes a little bit of a while and especially as a as a young kid i mean um i definitely that was definitely one of my things that i learned as a young kid mm-hmm. now we all know that you go on to to be a hurricane but before then uh, you kick along with the marker but then an opportunity pops up over in italy so yep. how did that come about and why did you take that, that chance to go over to Europe? Yeah, so I missed out on Super Rugby. That was a, that was the year after I had um, my first starting role with Tasman. And I um, I was quite, you know, I, well, once I missed out on Super Rugby, I was keen for anything. I was, either, I was going back to um, Nelson College to work as a teacher aide, I think. And someone just messaged me on Facebook asking if I'd be keen to go to Italy. And I was like, shit, yeah, <laughs> straight away. <laughs> He's like, all right, I missed my agent and he said, oh, yeah, you'll be gone in like next week or something. So me and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, we we thought about it and we just jumped, packed our bags and headed over there and went and lived in Italy for six months playing for Ironi, which was which was a hell of an experience. Yeah. Now, I, I did a bit of reading earlier in the year of um, about Marty Banks and his experiences over in Russia. Did you have anything similar to that or was it a bit, <laughs> or was it a bit cruisier in Italy? Yeah, definitely a little bit cruisier than the old Russian mafia. <laughs> um, 
no, when we first rocked up, it was like snowing. Oh, actually, I couldn't drive a, I do remember this because I'd, I couldn't drive a manual. I hadn't driven a manual before. And when we rocked up, I was, was jet lagged as, and they took us over to my, my car. They get, they supplied a car for me and it was a manual driving on the other side of the road. And they're like, oh, can you drive it home? And I was like, oh, shit. Oh, not, I just, I didn't say anything. I just said I was jet lagged as, um, I wonder if I asked them if they could drive it home just so I could get my bearings. Yeah. And then the next few weeks, I was like having to learn how to, how to drive a manual in the car park. It was like, <laughs> they're crazy drivers over there too. I'm, I'm surprised I survived that. Um, that was probably as mad as it got there for me. Yeah, a few bunny hops um, like like all the rest <laughs> of us when you learn to drive with a stick. So you're over there for yeah. a while and then... What made you come home? Was it your homesick? Did the contract run out or did you get a call from a coach back these ways? Oh, I was always planning on coming home. It was just a six-month stint. Um, there was talk at the time while I was over there about looking to extend and becoming an Italian international, but it never really, it didn't really sit too well with me. I was pretty keen to get back and give New Zealand rugby a good crack and I was I was still contracted the Tasman Marco, so I was, um, yeah, it was never really a serious decision for me. So then, yeah, you go back, you play for the Marco, and then somehow you end up in the seven scene. Is that is that am I am I talking the right time frame? Yep, yep. I think the following year I missed out on Super again, so I went hard on sevens. Wars for Tasman sevens went down to Queenstown, and went all right down there. And Pitch gave me a call and asked if I could come to a few camps and stuff. And, yeah, I ended up making the um, New Zealand Sevens team. Was that something that you had on your radar or was it something that just popped up, you know, you had nothing to do better over summer and so you go and play for the Marco again and then that opportunity arises? Or like was Sevens like a, another thing for you? Was it something that kept you fit over the summer? Well, once I missed out on Super, I saw that the opportunity there was to maybe try and make that New Zealand team. So. Um, I went pretty hard at trying to crack into it. And then when I was asked to go to a few camps, uh, those trainings were pretty intense. And, yeah, had to train pretty hard to survive those camps to be fair. And, yeah, I was just, once I once I got offered that black jersey, I was just like, I was stoked. And I was actually pretty keen to um, go down the seventh path over um, the super rugby path because I did actually get um, a contract a wider contract, a wider squad contract with um, the Hurricanes at the time too. But um, if I made the New Zealand Sevens squad, I said that I was going to do seven. So I told Mark Hammett that and told Gordon Titchens that if he picked me and if he contracted me, then I would have stayed with him. But um, he didn't contract me in the end, and I went back to the Hurricanes, and I was I was pretty stoked with that to be honest in the end. So did you make your debut that year for the Hurricanes as well? No, nah, that was just a wider squad. So the wider squad back then, you just I basically just did the pre-season with them and then went up to Taranaki and played a little bit of club rugby up there and that was about it. Mm, so was the, the Taranaki shift more so to be closer to the, the Wellington base or you know did, the, did you lose your spot at, at Tasman? What sort of happened there? No, nah, you had to, um, back then, to be picked up in wider, I also had to move to Taranaki. So that was the big. That was basically the reason for the move. I I knew I 
wasn't really getting a look in at the Crusaders. So when the opportunity came up to make the wider squad with, with the Hurricanes, which was always like my childhood team of dreams to be in the Hurricanes. And um, once that opportunity came up, I was like, I just had to tell Tasman that I had to leave for the opportunity really to progress my career. So you mentioned that you're a, I guess, a lifelong Hurricanes fan, but you're, you're born in Auckland and then you're bred in Crusader country. How does that happen? Yeah, that's a good question. I was just I just had an obsession with Christian Cullen, eh? As a young kid, I was mm. a massive Cullen fan. He basically was the reason I loved the Hurricanes. And um, there's so many... I just loved the way they played. They were always the entertainers. And, yeah, I just... Yeah, I'm not too sure, really. Like, I hadn't even been to Wellington. I remember going up to Wellington from Nelson um, to watch a Hurricanes Blues game. It was just, like, it was the first time I was up in Wellington. I was just loving it. It was a pretty memorable moment for me. Mm. So, you obviously play well enough for Taranaki at the back end of 2012 to then pick up a full-time contract uh, in 2013. So... I mean, like, I mean, how stoked were you? Because I know, you know, when you make your progressions, like, are you the sort of guy that sort of celebrates those small wins? And, like, where were you when you got that phone call to say, like, hey, we want you around full time? Uh, you're testing my memory here. I'm not actually too sure, but I do remember the game. Like, we had a shield game against Canterbury, and I got an opportunity. Bodie wasn't playing for some reason, and I was starting 10. And we, we won that shield game, and... It was after that game that I remember getting a call from the Hurricanes saying, oh, we're pretty interested in you for next season. Keep doing what you're doing and um, we'll talk again in a few weeks or something. It was something like that. And that was, so it was a bit of a, they sort of planted a seed, so it was never really like a, oh my God, I made it. But I remember after that phone call being like, okay, I'm, I'm in the frame here, but keep, keep going hard. And um, this opportunity would be awesome. So it got me pretty excited. And then, few weeks later they offered me a, a contract and yeah I was stoked um, obviously had a taste of it the year before and I knew knew all the guys quite well after the um, wider squad year so yeah I was just real, real excited to get stuck in mm-hmm. and you make your debut against the Crusaders yeah that's another one I don't really remember because it was just a little short stint off the bench but yeah I my first start was against the Highlanders that was that's pretty much the game that I claim as my debut because a little stint off the bench. It's hard to, hard to do much. I think I probably didn't even touch the ball in that real debut. So um, it's pretty hard to claim you, you played, really. <laughs> but my first start was like, I do remember that one. It was down at Forsyth Bar and the crowd down there. It was, it was a big crowd and the atmosphere in that stadium with the roof on and things like that. I just remember looking around and being like, holy, this is this is awesome and so excited about the opportunity to play in, under the roof and first uh, opportunity to cement the 15 jersey, but yeah, it didn't, didn't go too good. I got dropped the next week, so coaches weren't too happy, but um, yeah, it was an awesome experience and yeah, an opportunity I probably let slip. Well, you obviously didn't play all that bad or, or keep that um, the negative performances up considering you, you went on to be a champ. But just branching off that, you, you mentioned what it's like to play under the roof and just how crazy all those students are mixed in with you know the passionate rugby supporters that they have down in Otago. Would that be, 
and you know take nothing away from the Cape team, but you know they um like, let's be real that they, they struggled to fill it um prior to finals time. I mean they do all right with the with the with the All New Zealand derbies, but what would be your your favourite ground or the I guess the craziest experience you've had as a rugby player? Yeah, definitely um, Foresight Bars, my favourite stadium. I think it's that that moment there was just next level. It's one that I'll never forget. I mean, there's some awesome stadiums around the around the world that I played at. And to be fair, stadiums like Twickenham and um, Suncourt, Suncourt Stadium and things like that, they're probably they're better stadiums. And, um, I mean, I played at Twickenham in front of 60,000, so that was like a, that was a pretty unreal um, experience for me. And, I mean, if you are going on best ground and um, atmospheres, that was probably it. But um, in terms of New Zealand, I don't think you can beat Forsyth Bar. Like, yeah, the cake's in the home ground and it's, it's cool playing there, but you just—it's so hard to get any atmosphere in there. It's just so spread out, and a lot of it just leaves the leaves the stadium before it hits the field. To be fair, so um, I love what they did down in Dunedin, and I think they should try and replicate it um, wherever they can, especially somewhere like Christchurch. That stadium's quite tough to play at. That'd be awesome if they built a stadium like the Dunedin one. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess being an outside back, you know, playing at the Caketon. When the wind's swirling and when it's bucketing down with the rain, it doesn't make your life any easier. Whereas those boys, um, with the roof overhead, uh, for the Highlanders, they they have life pretty sweet every second week. But um, now you go on to be a champion, as I mentioned, and and I'll get to that. But one of the things, you know, well, you you're a player that played under both Mark Hammett, and then when there was a changing of the guard to Chris Boyd. And yeah. when Boyd took over the coaching staff, you know, along with all the other guys that he brought in with him, you know, the success seemed to come quite quickly, even though there maybe wasn't that great a turnover with players. I know that Hammett bled through a lot of young talent like your Barretts and your Perinaros, and those guys obviously ended up finding their feet at the time that Boyd came around. But just for you, as a guy who saw both coaches, I mean, was there that big a shift in... I guess the culture and the the style of play. Yeah, uh, good question. I wasn't there before Hammett came, so I came the year that Hammett came, and he'd just done like the big, the clean out of like cities and ma'as and things like that. So I never, I never really got to experience what it was like before Mark Hammett came. But once he came, like he, he you're like you're right. He did bleed through a lot of young, talented guys. He gave them all an opportunity. They kept that core group together for a few years to take them to the success at the in the end. But I guess the thing with Boydie coming in, he he's tactically a really good coach, and uh, I think Mark Hammett did a lot of good things around um, the environment and things like that. Um, and then I guess Boydie just polished it off with um, his tactical knowledge. He's, he's a smart coach, <clears throat> really rates him as a coach, and I think that's why. We ended up getting that success. Now, 2015, uh, d- just a quick story um, about me and my mates. We actually camped out for tickets to that final. We, um, True. Yeah, we, we, we did the all-nighter just to um, make sure that we were in attendance at that game. And, yeah, I guess it's um, I guess it's a thing to say that we, yeah, we were obviously quite disappointed at the end result in 2015. So, and, and the only reason I mention that is how much – learning and how much of it was it of that 2015 loss to the Highlanders you know I guess in front of you know the, the packed out home crowd gave you guys that fire in the belly to then kick on 
in 2016 and I know even the 2016 season didn't get off to the greatest start you guys lost to the Brumbies and you know they were calling you out about you know the laziness yada 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 but obviously you know come the end of the year you guys end up beating the Lions so you know is, is there anything that you can tell me about what happened I guess from that night and then to the I guess a year on yeah obviously we were pretty gutted um losing that final it was it felt like it was an opportunity it was ours to lose really I, we played the crusade uh we played the highlanders uh three or four weeks early and we'd we'd pump them by about 50 points and to be honest i i just felt like we thought we were going to win that and i mean finals you can just never think that that's i guess that's the one thing that i learned like there's no such thing as a easy final and you see that you see that everywhere you see it at the might have seen Cut, you said it's super rugby these days. It's like no matter what final you're in, it's gonna be a tough game. You're gonna to have to be right at the top of your game to win it. And we weren't that night. We missed a few opportunities and the gritty Highlanders team, um, who played well that night, they they caught us out with a few things and um I mean Ellie Dixon didn't win. score though, right? We we, no, we can both agree on that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the second tackle on him, so that one breaks me. It comes up on the highlights, it breaks me. Oh, one man. moment I'll never get back. But um, yeah, going to the following year, I guess um, things didn't start off that well, but we built our momentum really well towards the back end of that season. Got our line speed hissing, um, creating all sorts of opportunities from our D. And then just going into the um, finals, I guess what we learnt was to just keep it on and just like well, I mean we're playing the Sharks we played the I think it was the um, Chiefs Sharks and um, Lions were the last three final games and they were all wet games um, windy games they were games which if you didn't turn up you're losing so the boys were right on and <clears throat> yeah managed to get the win which was awesome yeah and I mean a lot of that for me I mean I was in love with Bowden Barrett like I, I um I was one of those guys who I take a lot of pride in getting on players early, whether that be in rugby and basketball and football. And I was quite, I was, you know, I was, I was, I was one of the early guys that, that you know, backed my horse um, with with Bowden Barrett. And I know that he's probably had a, I guess, an influence on your career with you being a ten and then having you to then switch to fullback to accommodate having having Bodie on the paddock as well. So. I mean, I listened to a bit about, you know, your transition from, you know, being primarily a 10 to then dropping to the back with um, some of the other podcasts that you've done. But was that something that spurred from the Hurricanes? Was that just like, you know, mate, you know, we really want you on the field, but, you know, we can't have you playing 10, so we're going to have to put you at 15. And was that something that you accepted initially because you wanted to get on the field or were you very stubborn at all? No, not at all. Um, I'm, I'd be happy to play anywhere, to be fair. And I think it's, might have even started a little bit at the Naki when um, Bodie was Bodie was there, or I might have had an opportunity there. Might have been Marty McKenzie or something. Anyway, I, I had a few opportunities where I went back to fullback, and I quite enjoyed it back there. I enjoyed not quite like being able to see more and then feed more information in. Whereas when you're at ten, um, it's it's really quite hard to be able to see everything and then communicate it. So I just felt like I could add something to the team by um, being a different set of eyes that I can feed information into the team. And, um, now, I love playing with Bodie. He was freakish, and you weren't the only one to back him in from a long way out. He was a pretty um, 
he was a pretty talented kid. Everyone knew it was something special from early on, and just his skill set was um, next level. And things he had, like the turn of foot, and just things always seemed to seem to go his way, just with his anticipation and things like that. He was he was obviously really gifted, and yeah, like I said, I'd love playing with him because when I could, when I gave him comps, he could execute his the skill that I gave him, like just so so pinpoint that. And it was it was just it was easy. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I love watching him. So I guess being maybe twenty meters away from him in the exact same game would be um, even crazier. But just one thing I want to clear up because I, I, I've asked a few of the Canes boys that haven't that I know, and they they haven't been able to give me a clear cut answer. But from what I've heard, Bowden doesn't do all that well um, in the in team testing in terms of like the sprint timings and whatever that you do. And but for whatever reason, he looks like the fastest guy on the paddock. You know, whenever he picks up a full head of steam. So, is it true that maybe he he relaxes it and takes it easy because he is such a freak? I mean, we saw what he did with his Bronco at the at the start of the year with with the Blues and setting that ridiculous time. So, is he that talented that maybe he takes a bit of his foot off the gas to make guys feel a bit better about themselves when it comes to no, testing? Definitely not. I think I think a lot of that comes down to just the way things are tested. Um, they test the 10 meter, 20 meter speeds like that. Such small margins. It can be the difference between like your knee being at the end of its stride, or having to come down and get your next leg through makes a massive difference on your time. Like I know Geordie can run like a super quick time, and you if you watch him, it it doesn't look very fast because he gets his knee up real high. Like there's lots of little ways around like the testing side of things. So um, Bodie's he's yeah, if you're backing someone to chase someone down, or you're not going to catch him from behind. He, he's rapid. Another thing that makes him look so quick on the field is just because of his fitness. He's got that base fitness that when people are tired, you lose so much speed when you're fatigued, and um, that's one thing that he doesn't really get is fatigue. So whenever there's a sprint, if you're racing someone who's a little bit fatigued at, like, you know, 80%, he he's not even if he's faster than Bodie fresh. There's no way he's catching Bodie on the field. Yeah, someone really needs to go up to um go up to the Barrett Farm and see what they they fed their kids because the, the the fact that they've tuned out so many great athletes is is pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, getting back to you. Um, although we both do love Bodie. Uh, you finish I guess 2016 on a high, winning that championship, but then you then bugger off to go play in England, um, and then off the back of that you go and um, spend some time in Japan. So, I mean, what was that footy like, and how did that differentiate from what you'd experienced back here? Um, yeah, so when I first moved over, the team was in the championship. They, they'd just been relegated, which was pretty um, disappointing, but the level of rugby was, it's hard to say, it, it wasn't a massive drop in terms of, like the actual rugby is just the way that the game was played was just so different. The emphasis on the set piece was massive. Kicking game, um, D, it was the, they were the three main focuses. Not so much like speed of ball, counter attack, turnover attack, things like that weren't really um, weren't really a priority. So just different focuses was the was the main shift that I saw. So were you playing 10 over there as well, or were you playing fullback? Um, a little bit of both. Uh, my first game was at fullback, and then I ended up moving into 10. Um, played <coughs> most of the 
premiership year at Denver. Uh, yeah, because the, the, <coughs> yeah, the, 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 the perception is from over here that you know the rugby is quite boring. And I guess from some of the, the points you've just rattled off, the fact that they don't have as big an emphasis on, I guess, the, the speed of play at, um, over there as they do here, I, I guess, especially with being a back, that can make the game quite boring. But did you think you grew as a player with having to focus more on, on the tactical side of things and maybe take a bit more time in, into learning how to, I guess, better direct your team around the paddock rather than worrying about, you know, I guess, sidestepping who was in front of you? Yeah, 100%. Um, like, I, I say they had different focuses, but they could still play over there. Some of the um, teams, especially in the Premiership, were like quality and the skill level was real high. So when they decided to play, man, they were like really skillful and talented teams. But it was just more, yeah, like like I said, the focus. And I mean, it's like saying that we, we can't scrum is like saying that they can't play i mean we can still do it it's just not like the main focus for our game so um it definitely changed the way i thought about the game i went over there obviously having just won the um super rugby i thought i knew um the way the game should be played um but i learned a lot about different styles and uh, more the pressure game and i was, who was i talking to the other day uh, david harvilli mentioned that what how much the crusaders learned from playing the british and irish lines in terms of playing the pressure game and being able to um, learn from that game that they played against them and then take it into the Super Rugby. So um, it's, it's an interesting thing, like the pressure game compared to like the full-out attack game. It's, uh, yeah, it's always an interesting discussion. Mm. I'm guessing the rugby in Japan was a little bit different than what it was like in England, I'm guessing with drier tracks and, and smaller blokes, the game was a bit quicker? Yeah, 100%. That was like, no pressure game over there. It was just out and out attack. You just there was no kicking game, no kicking structures, things like that. Just just play, play what you see, and just go for it. Real high speed, high tempo stuff. So it was all pretty loose. But to be fair, some of the teams in that competition are quite good. And they changed their foreigner rules, so they got five foreigners on the field. Some teams have like five world class internationals with real good Japanese players as well. So those teams are like. They'd probably compete at Super Rugby, where the side that I was at had, you know, like part-time Japanese rugby players and a couple of battlers as their um, foreigners, and yeah, we struggled. <laughs> now, because I guess what we're seeing a lot now is the the sabbaticals that are getting taken by some of our more experienced All Blacks, with with allowing them to go over to Japan and earn a bit of pocket money over there while also having a New Zealand Super Rugby, uh, New Zealand Rugby contract. And so is a big part of that the fact that the, the rugby is a lot less harsher on the body because you're not playing, you know, big Polynesian boys or big Springboks week in, week out like you do when you're playing in Super Rugby and at the international level? Um, yeah, hard to know. Like, I think maybe a little bit, but I honestly just think that the money for the time frame, like you're not there for that long. If you can get paid the money that some of these guys are getting paid for like six months' work, it wouldn't really matter the size of the guys, I don't think. I mean, it's definitely not as physical. And if you're a forward, I mean, the opportunity to go to Japan would be pretty um, would be pretty good, I think. But they do train hard. Like, they long as training, because my brother's just found out over in Japan. Like, he can't believe how long some of these training sessions are. You're on your feet for like, three hours plus just like what you'd never 
never be supposed to here in New Zealand. So like the load sort of management and things isn't that good. So although it's easier on the body physically with collisions and stuff, um, some of the trainings and stuff are pretty tiring. And I mean, not my hips took a hammering over there with some of those long sessions on my feet. Just I just couldn't cope. How did you find the lifestyle over there? Was it quite difficult, I guess, adjusting to, I guess, an Asian way of living um, after spending, um, I guess, a bit more time in a more westernised world, you know, over in England and Europe and back here? Yeah, we loved it over there. Eh? The lifestyle was awesome just because the amount of time that I had where I didn't have to train, like I had so much family time there. Track, like the boys were the rest of the team would be out working, you know, from nine till three. So our training hours were four till six or four till six thirty. So I had the I was with the family all day and we were out exploring what Japan has to offer and it's an amazing country, had awesome beaches and um things like this, which you don't going there I never really pictured Japan as like a beachy place or warm place. I just picture like, you know, tram trains and cities and just hustle bustle but man when you actually get down to like the countryside and you know a bit a little bit out of Tokyo man there's some beautiful spots and um, it was really cool to like be able to travel to different parts of Asia and things like that it was we loved it there eh? I, I definitely got to get over there at one stage I've been over to Thailand but I'm guessing Japan's probably a little bit different with a bit more going on but you, you come back to New Zealand and you, you take up another stint with the Canes and then you mentioned the hip injury that you've had, which, I mean, you, you did your shoulder last year and then you've had the the hip injury this year. So I guess that put you on the sidelines for a bit longer that, than what you would have wanted. And unfortunately, um, due to COVID, you, well, the Hurricanes had to let go one of their coaching members and Carlos Spencer, who I guess was probably an influential figure, you know, given all that he's done in the game. But with that loss of, um, him, you know, came the opportunity for you to step up into a coaching role. Now, you mentioned earlier on the fact that, you know, you, you always sort of saw yourself working in and around rugby. It didn't really matter. Well, you know, obviously you wanted to do it primarily as a player, but you would have taken any opportunity just to be around the game that you love. So had coaching sort of been on your radar before you got this opportunity to, I guess, you know, jump into the coaching box with Jason Holland and co? Yeah, like coaching, to be honest, even as a young kid, well, I, I probably almost thought I'd be more of a coach than a player and um but I knew that you needed to you needed to play the game at the the higher level you played the more likely you, you could be a coach but um obviously I didn't expect my career to go as well as it has and we've I've had to move around so much with the family I've, I've always wanted to coach and still do want to coach but um just with the amount of moving that I've had to do with my family we're pretty um sick of like having to pack up my oldest is it school next he starts school next year so we're pretty keen to just pedal down and for me that unfortunately will probably mean I won't be able to chase my coaching dream which would be cool I'd love to be able to um, travel the world and take up some coaching opportunities but um, mate I think it's time to put the family first and if a coaching opportunity comes up where I am which at the moment is Nelson um, then yeah I, mate, I'm, I'd love to I'd love to coach. Mm-hmm. So, so what are you doing at the moment with Nelson? So with Cat, well, I'm with the sort of oh, helping. Yeah. Sorry, Nelson Tasman, Tasman. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So just sort of helping them out. I don't don't really have a role to be fair. 
just learning as much as I can off um, the coaches that they have there. Got a quality coaching staff and just learning what I can. And um, yeah, like haven't really got too much or I'll just putting in my two cents here and there, but uh, nothing major, just more sort of trying to get the foot in, um, see how it all works and hopefully maybe something down the line could come from it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're not coaching, I guess now, or, you know, doing your work around the Marco, um, you're also got your own podcast gig, which um, as we talked about off the year, you, you started up at the start of the year and, Maybe for some of the people who haven't listened to some of the other podcasts that you've been on, maybe give us a bit of background as to how you got into getting a few of the boys on the mic. Yes, I I started with, um, I was the Hurricanes Info Committee my first year in the team and it was always like an embarrassing way to embarrass young guys in the team to make them stand up in front of the bus. But I was never that keen to do that. So I started making these little audio um, packages, I guess, that I'd play on the bus whenever the team went to... Um, an away game and I just started to grow from there and by the end of my career I mean the back end of my Hurricanes career I was it was a massive sort of project of sort of like a 15 minute audio package that would just get played on the bus and had things like cranks and segments of got rinsing the other guys who'd stuffed up or done something that week and it was always just a bit of a laugh and when the podcast opportunity came around I was just I was starting to think like man I've been doing this for last sort of five years it's been quite cool to just be able to get some of the guys on and put it a bit more mainstream and see if the I've always thought I always wanted to like make the guys feel comfortable or like get let people hear what guys are really like what the guys that I know they like in the in the changing rooms and stuff what is never really replicated in the media so um, it was something that I, was, I really wanted to try and get across to the rest of the people the rest of the um, public so yeah, that's sort of where it started from. Yeah, I'm I'm very similar to you. Um, I guess coming back to me, I I promise I won't take up too much of your podcast. But yeah, like you mentioned, uh, I feel like there's a lot of work to be done in the New Zealand media um, around the way that they treat the players. And I think one of the big problems that we face as as fans is just that we don't really know the players like like someone like you know as a player yourself and someone who rubs shoulders with these guys every day and like yeah. I know a few of the guys and a lot of them really are characters and, and hilarious blokes but when they get up in front of the camera you know they're a totally different person and you know you know for me because I'm not in that environment I could never understand why but having talked to them and having seen you know some of the stories that get misconstrued off even some of the work that you did I mean and I think one of the ones that I read earlier in the year was around Dane Coles and some of the stuff yeah. that he said that just gets taken out of context because they just take, you know, that small, that small sound, sip it and, you know, yeah. run with it like a story. It's, it's, it's just it's stuff like that that I wish that didn't take place. And so, yeah, it is really cool for someone like yourself who has an even greater rapport with these rugby guys. I mean, I, I still struggle myself. I mean, like I'm here, you know, I've got the biggest grin ear to ear talking to someone like you because I am just such a big rugby nerd and um, I always tell people that it's almost like I'm almost living, I guess, my dream as, I guess, an aspiring All Black, if, if that doesn't sound too sad, or as an aspiring professional rugby player through through you guys and, and all the stories that you have. And it's quite cool to then, you know, share these with, with people because that's the stuff that people want to know because, I think that for the most part, we put guys like yourself up on a pedestal and 
don't get me wrong, I, I guess there's perks with being a rugby player and there's a lot of stuff that comes with it. But then at the same time, I know that a lot of the time you guys just want to be treated like normal blokes. But because you guys struggle to, I guess, show that in the media because of what can happen when you do be yourself, that that's where that sort of relation or that relatability from player to fan can be really quite difficult. 100% Kingy. Geez, I need to get you on my podcast. That's powerful stuff. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm just really passionate about it, I guess, with, like I said, with you know knowing some of the boys. So I guess a prime example of this is Salisi. Now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we can get to the jaundy stuff like that. That's all time, mate. Um, yeah. <laughs> all that race stuff that you did. But, but for him and, like, you know, the, the fact that you got him to do um, his impersonations, because, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That guy is yeah. just, like, he is something else. And for those of for those people that are lucky enough to know him well and, you know, for him to be able to open up to them, I guess, you know, I, I do feel very fortunate to have crossed paths with a guy like him. But, you know, like a lot of people would have never seen that side of Slessy or don't even know about it because mm. it's just not something that's, I guess, there, you know, right there in the public eye. You know, like for, for those people who don't listen to your podcast who or who aren't on social media, they probably just look at Slessy as just another rugby player. But, you know, for me, like, I'd almost want him to have his own podcast. I think he's just like that humorous and that brilliant. But yeah, yeah unfortunately, you know, a lot of these guys put a wall up because, yeah, they just they, they just don't feel comfortable, you know, sharing that side of themselves yeah. with them, which is cool. But then I also think part of that is that they just don't know how to talk to the media without possibly getting themselves in trouble. Yeah, so at least he's an interesting one, I reckon, because a lot of people see him um, celebrate, you know, after the games and stuff, and they're like, oh man, that guy. Why is he like he he looks like a bit of a dick and that sort of stuff like celebrating like that, but then I've, I know a few guys have like reached out to me, messaged me and said, man, since hearing your Salisi um, podcast, that that he's now like their favorite player and they just they like love him as a player because they like got to know the real guy that he became and that was quite powerful for me because I I knew that he I knew what he was like like you and. Uh, He's an awesome dude, and when people see him celebrate and you know get pit, a little bit annoyed with him, like doing that sort of stuff, it's like until you get to know him, you don't really understand him. And uh, mate, I, I love how he celebrates. It's him just being him, and he's he's a guy who loves playing, loves playing rugby, loves scoring tries, and the emotion that he feels when he scores a try, feel I'm I'm happy as for him to celebrate yeah. like that. It's cool. I love seeing him express himself like that. But um, as a nation, I don't think. New Zealanders really like players who do that. I mean, it's just people want you to have a cold face and sort of jog up to halfway. So I think the more that we can encourage players to be themselves and express themselves, the better. Yeah, I, I definitely think that attitude is changing with perhaps, you know, like your generation and even more so my generation with a lot of the stuff that guys like Salisi, Yuriko Iwani, and I think a lot of it's influenced by a lot of the stuff that's happening over in America because a lot of their stuff is player-empowered. You know, a lot of those players over in America, they, they pretty much run their leagues and they face their leagues, whereas I guess over there, there's, you know, there's, a, there's being a gradual shift. And, I mean, like, I can only imagine what would happen, you know, if someone like Bowden Barrett was a bit more eccentric and, uh, I guess, similar to, to Salisi. But I guess that, that just comes with having different backgrounds. But, yeah, 
Oh, yeah, I, I'm. I guess we're of the same mindset, bro. Like, I have no problem with um, Salisi celebrating his tries as long as he's doing his job and doing it in a respectful manner, which which I think that he is doing right now. But yeah, oh, um, I just yeah. It, it, I guess that's the the beauty of having these podcasts and having someone like yourself who has you know has that rapport with the players. Um, yeah, with such a large player base, and then you know being able to tell you know the I guess. The, the truth or you know being able to shed a light on what these guys are actually like so that way you know yeah Celeste isn't a dickhead anymore you know he's he's someone's favorite player so I guess that that pretty much wraps up what I want to capture I guess from you your rugby career and what you're going on and what you've got going on at the moment but before I let you go I've got, I've got two parts um I've got a humorous side which we can end on but before that I, I like to get a, a glimpse into and you know please bear with me this is the rugby nerd in me and me probably like analyzing the game too much but what's your game day prep like like do you have like quite a strict ritual and do you put a left boot on for the right boot do you have to have a certain thing for breakfast or have a, a certain meal before game day like could you run us through your game day routine i did used to have a certain meal which was like a um, chicken gnocchi pasta which um i like it was a maybe i went through a period where i missed the one about 30 games straight having this meal I was just like oh I can't not have it now because it's been so successful but then I probably lost about 30 games straight so <laughs> I gave up on the um, pre-game knocky pretty quickly once we started losing but I haven't really got too many rituals I always put my right sock on first that's just because I can't it takes me about five minutes to get my left sock on <laughs> right boot comes on get my trainer or something to help me put my left boot on the hips that stuff but other than that i'd like to get out of the house as early as possible especially if we're playing at um west pack or something i'd always go down to the stadium pretty early and get out of the house i never really liked um the sooner I, the sooner i was at the stadium the more comfortable i felt and being around the boys was always always good so the sooner i could get there and see everyone I'd, the quicker i'd relax really cool Cool. So pretty easy going fella. Um, and yeah, so I've got 10 questions. So this segment was called 10 in the bin. Um, and yeah, I'll just fire some, some quick rapid questions at you and you just do your best to answer them as honestly as possible. Um, so question number one, what is your go-to vessel at a pre-drinks? Fortune Favour. <laughs> is there a particular beer? From oh, the green bullet Oh, green bullet Yeah, yeah, not a bad plug, not a bad plug. Uh, who is the biggest coach's pet that you've been around? Chris Smiley. Mm, is there a reason why? Uh, not really. He is always in there. All right. Uh, what was your must do, or even now, what's your must do on a day off? Um, no, I've got to spend some time with the kids. Go to. Understandably. Uh, least favourite fitness block? Oh, the rower or something like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the rower either. Uh, favourite cheat meal? Um, probably knackers. What's your order? Um, I wouldn't say I have a go-to, but something like a hunger buster or something like that. It's usually good enough for me. Nice. Uh, most regretful purchase, so... What have you gone out and splashed a whole lot of money on and then like the next day or the next week being like, damn, I should not have bought that? Mate, I'm, 
I've never been much of a spender, to be honest. So I, I always get my money pretty close. So I haven't splashed out on anything too outrageous. Maybe um, it's been a bad one. I'll probably punting. <laughs> <laughs> Did you throw a bit down yesterday? Yeah, yeah. How'd you Went go? And, oh, filthy with the ride, to be honest. But um, <laughs> big builds always going to happen. Yeah. All right. Uh, guilty music pleasure. Guilty music pleasure. Um, I'm pretty hard out rap, so any hardcore rap would get me. Mm. If guilty, I'm not too sure. Yeah, no, no, we'll take it. Uh, what is your go-to dance move? Mate, I'm, I'm dancing, dancing days are long gone for me. I'm, I'm at the bar and just sitting with a vessel, just <laughs> sitting down. I'm, you won't see me on the dance floor any time, but um, if I had to, or probably just like a tap the foot and a click or something like that. <laughs> Very standard. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. But that that's not for um, lack of trying. I just yeah, I for whatever reason when I try to get going, it just it's like a dog's breakfast. So I, I stay away from that. Um, who is the biggest grub you've played with and against? Oh, Kelsey, both, hundred percent. He's such a grub. All Easy right. answer. <laughs> All right, last question, my man. Uh, Saturdays are for rugby. Saturdays of rugby, yeah, I, I like it. That's um a bit different than some some of the other answers. Like you, you could have said family, you could have said the boys, but I, I love where your head's at. You know, you you, you nailed Saturday it on the head. Saturday, yeah, yeah, but Sundays of family, Saturday night for the boys. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I hope I haven't stitched you up with that one, but yeah, um, yeah, no, nah, this this has been this has been really really cool, James. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking out your time uh, to to sit down with me and allow me to share your story on my platform. And um, as as we talked about with a lot of the stuff that's going on in the media and, and the work that you're doing with your own podcast, um, I guess I guess for me, I, I just want to say thank you for giving us an even greater look into what goes on behind the scenes with with all the rugby players or all the professional rugby players that we have um i guess in in your space that you're occupying and yeah keep up the great work that nah, cheers mate really appreciate you having me on um like i said at the start big fan of your work and um big yeah as big a fan of yours as you are of mine so um keep doing what you're doing and it's been awesome listening to you honestly you don't know how much that means mate um but yeah I'll, I'll let you go. Appreciate your hey, time. Hey, cheers, mate. Hey, all good. Thanks, mate.